everyone. Welcome to the Hoya Community Church. So glad you're with us. If you're able, would you stand? We're going to spend some time worshiping through song this morning. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Who made just greed without the sweet while shepherds watch our keeping? This, this is Christ our King, who shall. God and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring and the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him in since God and come as a king to all the king of kings. Nothing comes. 
singing of the babe, who is his child, declare that he's the one who's existed always, and that he's come and took on flesh and humbled himself to become man, to be despised by the ones he created, to give us life and hope. When wrath and judgment were right and reasonable, he came and gave grace and peace, and we celebrate him this morning. We say, oh, come, let us adore him. And let's just sing that with our voices again. Oh, come, let us adore him. Would you worship him this morning? Make much of him in this room together. Oh, come, let us Welcome this morning, students. You're heading off to your program. Thanks for being with us. Otherwise, greet each other. for taking the time to do that. It's, a, it's an honor to pray with people during the week, and it's a, we have a team that prays for you, so thank you for taking that time. Now, this is, brings us to our announcements. Next Monday is Christmas Eve service. Can you believe Christmas is just a little over a week away? Well, Monday, December 24th, we're going to be having our services here. It's a time to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus. Invite your friends, your family, your co-workers, and come celebrate with us at one of our two gener intergenerational services at 4.30 and 6 p.m. We're having two services on Christmas Eve here at LGCC, 4.30 and 6 p.m. And as a reminder, we will have next Sunday two services, 9 and 10.45, here at the sanctuary as well. 
On Sunday, December 30th is our end of the year brunch. This is a great time just to sit around and meet new friends and talk to friends you haven't seen in a while and just celebrate what 2018 meant to you. Start talking and dreaming about what 2019 will be. So don't forget that we'll be doing a brunch after our 9 and 1045 services. So we have two services on Sunday the 30th, and the brunch will take place after both those services. In just a few weeks, we have our financial class kicking off. This is an amazing class, and it's for everybody. If you're a financial expert or if you're a financial newbie, if you think your finances are great or you know your finances are in some place that gets flushed, this is the class for you. It's going to be after the second service at 1230 in the Welcome Center. Uh, we encourage you to come. It, child care is available, but we do need you to RSVP. So come see me after the service. I'll be right out there at that little green table with a smile, and you can sign up for that class. It's going to be Sunday, this, uh, January 6th, after this first service. Second service, I'm sorry. Well, this brings us to a time of prayer. If you have those connection cards, the ushers will come by. At the end of the service, you can just fold those, and they'll grab those from you. So let's Lord God Almighty, Jesus, your Son, and Holy Spirit, you are our joy, our peace, and our strength. You are trustworthy and faithful even when we are not. Though we may profess to desire peace in our lives, we confess that we engage in conflict as a selfish wanting to control circumstances and others, and sometimes even in little insignificant things that shouldn't matter. Forgive us when we react too quickly out of insecurity, fear, or a critical spirit. Thank you that when we confess with a contrite heart, you will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Praise be to God. We thank you, Lord, for our church family and all of those willing to serve according to their gifting, for our board leaders whom you have called and whom you equip with wisdom and discernment. Lord, what a privilege it is to join you in the miraculous work that you're doing in the world today. Thank you that even one dollar cheerfully placed in your hands can be multiplied to achieve your will, both here in our community and around the world. Father, this Christmas season for many may be a very tender time. We pray for those who have experienced great loss or illness this year. Remind us to keep our eyes on Jesus that we may live above our circumstances and in the power of your great love, joy, peace, provision, and grace. And finally, we pray that the spirit of our government leaders would be quickened and humbled, causing a new wave of wise, respectful dialogue and productive cooperation. Jesus, you are our king. Hear our cry. Thank you for your sovereignty over all things. In your holy name we pray, amen. Kathy, thank you so much. Well, here we are in Advent. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've been asking the question, what does Advent mean? And so two weeks ago we talked about that uh, Advent means expectation. Last week, Advent means surprise. You can hear those messages uh, online if you like. Uh, today, uh, we're talking about the fact that Advent means conflict. Uh, Advent means conflict. And, and therefore, I, say, I suggest you stay off the roads and don't go to the mall. And that pretty much sums up um, what you can do to avoid conflict. Um, and don't go to any family gatherings or any place where you might have people who are annoying. Um, but Advent means conflict in a lot more profound way than that. And that's what we want to explore today. Because uh, if we don't explore that and understand that, we are going to buy into our culture's superficial understanding of what Christmas is about. 
Uh, we reduced Christmas to something very, very flat and irrelevant. Uh, <clears throat> it's a retail experience that you can't miss. And I, I, I don't disparage any of the celebrations or the retail part or the you know, gift giving or all, all the part of Christmas that we, we, that we embrace culturally, uh, I love. Um, the problem is if you don't understand the fullest context, uh, what's the point, right? It's an experience in excess. So Advent means conflict. Uh, Jesus was born the Prince of Peace. That's what that famous verse out of Isaiah 9 says, uh, the Prince of Peace. Why did he encounter so much conflict? If Jesus was peace personified and he shows up into the world, you think everybody would say, ah, thank God, literally, thank God uh, you're here, uh, peace has arrived. Uh, but we just see the opposite. We see a lot of conflict. Um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the answers is to get to the core of our wound. The fact that we, we by nature, uh, are running from God, resisting God, we're restless about God, and it's this approach avoidance kind of relationship we have with him. Why is that? Uh, because of the, of the break in the relationship we have with God, God made everything perfectly. When he was done on that seventh day of creation, he said, not only is it good, it's very good. It's good, good. Uh, and whatever mechanisms uh, you, you uh, understand uh, that God applied to create the world, the fact is that God created it. That's the big message of the Bible. It's not about it. the technology he used. It's about the fact that God himself created all things and is invested in all things and is committed to the creation he created. Uh, he's not bound by it. Uh, he's above it, but he works in it and through it. And so the message of Advent is that God is coming back to rescue and redeem the creation uh, uh, that he loves dearly. Uh, and so uh, the Apostle Paul was a rabbi, Saul, who became a follower of Jesus. And then he was called the Apostle, one who is sent in Jesus' name. He's writing to some Roman Christians, and, and he, he sums up why it's inherently conflictual uh, to identify with Jesus and that Jesus' arrival was inherently conflictual. He says this, the mind, uh, our minds, governed by the flesh, is hostile to God. In this case, flesh just means our human capacity to say, I'm self-contained, I don't need anyone telling me what to do. I can manage my own life apart from God, apart from anybody or anything. And so the flesh is really saying, I depend on me for all things. Now, being responsible for yourself is obviously a good thing. Uh, but to be a self-contained unit without um, acknowledging that there's a God who created you uh, puts us in a place of conflict with him. And so the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It means that actually, not just that we don't have the will, we do not have the capacity. So this idea of being suffering a break from a relationship with God, we just can't work a little harder and be a little better to get back to it to repair it. There's something that's so out of joint, so out of whack, that we are helpless uh, and, and hopeless without God himself making the initiative. And so there's this inherent conflict. God shows up and we say, what do you want? Because whatever you want, I don't think I need it. I'm happy just the way I am. Uh, and, and, and so really what it comes down to is this. This is very simple. This is our attitude toward God. You're not the boss of me. Did you ever say that as a kid at any time? Raise your hand if you ever said this as a kid. To a sibling, to your parents, to a friend. You are not the boss of me. I'm the eldest of five kids. I heard this a lot. <clears throat> I heard this a lot. Uh, yes, no, I am the boss of you. Because I'm bigger than you. At one point, I could hold both of my brothers down with one hand. Uh, and now when I see them, I go, you guys, look. Uh, about the time I held you, back, held you down with one hand, um, it's all forgiven. 
my bad, we're all good, right? That kind of a thing. But we have this attitude, and it's not really funny at the heart of it. You're not the boss of me. And so Paul recognizes that in his letter to the Romans. God recognizes that. And still, while we're yet enemies, it says, God came uh, to redeem us. So this is the, the inherent conflict of, of uh, what we celebrate as Advent. Now, of course, there's a big human dimension to it, and that's what we're going to explore as well today. So John, uh, writing in his gospel, John, uh, again, a follower of Jesus, uh, says this, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In this case, darkness uh, represents uh, chaos. It represents our resistance to God. And notice the word overcome. That's a conflictual word. Jesus came into the world to overcome something. When you're trying to overcome something, you're trying to work through a conflict, to overcome injustice, to push back on something that's not right, that makes you feel oppressed uh, or attacked uh, or held back. Uh, Matthew, quoting Jesus in chapter 16, says, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Uh, there's a conflict. There's some, there's some power that's at, at, at cross purposes with God. No power is equal to God. But there is a power. We have an enemy, Satan, who is a, who is a created being, rebellious uh, and antagonistic toward God and all his purposes. And so Jesus has said, look, the gates of hell will not overcome uh, my kingdom. Uh, John, again, writing, uh, uh, quoting Jesus at the last meal that he had with his disciples before his crucifixion. He says, look, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. You will have conflict. But take heart. I have overcome the world. There's that word again, overcome. Uh, I, I have the power. I have the capacity. I have the, the, uh, the commitment to overcome everything that gets in the way of you being free to experience the peace of God in your life. So that's, that's, that's in, in the whole um, narrative, uh, starting with Jesus' birth and throughout his entire ministry, preceded by the First Testament, the Old Testament, there's just this narrative of conflict that hangs over the people, that insinuates itself into everything that the people of Israel and, and, and any person on earth experiences. And one of the things that, that, uh, you, that all human beings have in common, no matter where you go, they want to experience love and they find it impossible to avoid conflict. Interesting, no matter what language, what culture you're in, everybody deals with conflict uh, and everybody desires love. Uh, years ago, there was a, a missionary who went to, to um, a part of Papua New Guinea called Irian Jaya, and <clears throat> he was trying to tell the people about Jesus, and uh, they were just so bored when he was talking about Jesus. And as he's talking about um, Judas, the people get all lit up, and they start leaning in around this fire going, Really? Tell me more. And, and, and he's thinking, I'm not a very good missionary, apparently, because for these people, Judas is the hero of this story. And he's going, this is not going well. This is not what I intended. And as he understood the culture, he found out that in this culture, one of the highest things you could do would be to, to woo your enemy into thinking that you were friends. And it's just the right moment, nail him. And so if, if you're really successful, you slept on your enemy's skull as your pillow. And so he's thinking, oh, no. I've just told them that the best part of the good news of the gospel is that Judas takes in Jesus. After three years, he lures him in to trust, and then boom, he kills him. And he was bereft. He goes, oh, what am I going to do? And he said, look, uh, this is it? This is, this is your understanding? Yes. 
So he, he, was, he was mulling this over, praying, God, help me to find a redemptive analogy in this culture. And at some point, they had a conflict with another tribe. And, and he said, hey, so what are you guys going to do in this conflict? Because it's going to be, you know, everybody's going to die, basically, by the time they get a result. They said, well, it'd be, it'd be, this would be such a mutually assured destruction moment that we have this thing in our culture where we call it the peace child. And each tribe takes a, a treasured child, and they, they exchange it. And they give one tribe their child, and they take from that tribe their child. And these children represent peace between the tribes. And we do everything we can to nurture and preserve these children. These, child, these children win the peace. And all of a sudden he goes, oh my gosh, that's it. Jesus, you think Jesus is a hero? Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the peace child. A redemptive analogy. So God comes into the world as the peace child to bring what we cannot get. And so he comes to overcome the world to deliver us peace. This is a powerful, powerful motif in the Bible. But we see that Jesus encountered conflict because he came into the world to break down every barrier between us and God. Uh, this is a picture of a wall in Bethlehem, <clears throat> the place of Jesus' birth. And the Prince of Peace, born in the city of peace in Bethlehem, and uh, surrounded by a 22-foot wall. And it's, it's, a, it's a bummer. And so somebody has, has painted on this wall, Merry Christmas from Bethlehem Ghetto. There's still a big, fat barrier here. And so it's sort of a sardonic, ironic, cynical way of saying that we need Jesus' peace more than ever. Matthew says this. Uh, from that time on, from Jesus declaring that the gates of hell cannot prevail, and I've come to bring you peace. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Does this sound not like a, a serious conflict? That Jesus is saying to the disciples, it's been a great three years. You've seen me do miracles and all kinds of healings and, and, and say profound things. Uh, but here's why I came. And, and they're going, this is not a good idea. Because they had just been in a beautiful place at the bottom of Mount Hermon. Right now, Mount Hermon is going to be collecting snow. And soon people will be skiing on the top of Mount Hermon in Israel. And Mount Hermon is the source, the headwaters for the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. And it's such a beautiful, exquisitely beautiful place. If you've been down to Havasupai in the Grand Canyon, it's one of the most beautiful places, that waterfall coming into the, the beautiful water. If you've been to Sabino Canyon in Tucson, uh, if you've been to the Tuolumne River in Yosemite, I think of all the places you've been where you see in, some, in Hawaii, you know, you're in White Peel Valley and you go, oh my gosh, look at that waterfall, that pool. That's what it was like being um, at, the, at the base of Mount Hermon. And, and it was so beautiful that people started to build all these little temples representing massive idolatry. And they said, this is so beautiful. This is, the, this is the way into paradise. This is the way into heaven. And Jesus looked at all those. He said, you know what? Uh, this, these are the gates of hell. These are the gates of hell. And I'll explain more in depth what that means in a bit. Because I think we have a massive understanding of what that means in our culture. So having said that, he said, who do you say that I am? And of course, that's when they had the discussion. Well, some say you're this, some say you're that. And Peter says, I say you are the son of the living God. And he's commended for that. And now as they start to go, uh, it says Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. He's in the far, 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 far extreme north. He's going to now go south, but then up to Jerusalem. And at that point, he says what I just read. It's on the screen. And Peter says, don't do it. And Jesus said, what? Get behind me, Satan. This is what I came to do. 
Satan wants to keep you from dealing with any conflict in your life. First of all, he wants conflict to consume you, and he wants it to cause you to attack or retreat or do something, anything but resolve the conflict. Remember, in, in the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was confronted by Satan who said, I promise you this, I'll give you that. And then the whole thing was bogus. And Jesus said, look, uh, it's not going to happen. You can't give me anything that I don't already have. And I came to destroy your power over this world. So this is the major conflict that Jesus came to address. <clears throat> and so having addressed it, Paul can then write to the Romans in the rest of his letter, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access that we could not otherwise have gained by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I just didn't work a little harder, live a little better, and I gained access. It was so out of my reach, out of my capacity, it took God himself to tear down a barrier to let me have access to him. And so, by way of introduction, I wanna hit three things uh, in this message about Advent meaning uh, conflict. The first is this, Jesus' birth fulfilled Israel's hope and revealed Israel's helplessness. It fulfills Israel's hope for the Messiah, but it reveals Israel's helplessness to do anything about it. Uh, historically, Israel was absolutely preoccupied, obsessed with the fact that God promises to redeem us. In the meantime, though, they were so indifferent and even hostile toward him. They had this constant cycle of disruption where they'd be taken into captivity and, 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 and God would say, when are you going to learn that, that, that I am uh, the object of your worship, not these idols or this sense of power or entitlement uh, that you seem to have? And so Israel has been a land of perpetual conflict. That's part of the, the, the context for this, this notion that Advent means conflict. So you have all these tribes who have, have staked their claim and tried to take over that land. The Amalekites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, uh, the Hivites. Those are modern-day Turks. These people have not gone away. They just have different names now. Canaanites, Girgashites, Perizzites, Parasites, Sermites, um, probably Vegemites and Marmites. I don't know. Now, there's a lot of them out there, a lot of these people. Uh, Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, Hasmoneans, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, priests of Qumran, Jewish nationalists, Arabs, Turks, Jordanians, British, and Americans with high knee socks and Bermuda shorts and cameras walking around going, wow, I want to take this place. Uh, home into my pictures, you know. Uh, so it's a land of perpetual conflict. We all know that. To, di to this day, some of you have said, I will never go to Israel. There's too much conflict there. Ironically, paradoxically, it's probably one of the most safe places to be because since there's so much conflict, everybody's armed and dangerous. So there's pre it's pretty safe actually being there uh, of all places. So Jesus arrives in the midst of this conflict. And then Paul, again, right into the Romans, now as a follower of Jesus, says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still helpless and hopeless, when we were still powerless, Christ, Christ, he saw our conflict and he came into it. He didn't run away from it. Uh, I was talking to a young man after the last service, Connor. Uh, he's a young Marine at Miramar. I said, so what do you do, Connor, at Miramar? He goes, oh my gosh, I got the best job. I said, what is it? He goes, well, when something goes wrong with a plane, if there's a crash or something, uh, my, my crew runs out there to save the guys. I'm like, that's your favorite thing to do? To run toward danger? He goes, oh, yeah. I just love that. I'm thinking, don't you love to hear that? 
that when your house is on fire, somebody says, I'm going to suit up and come help. Right? Jesus said, I see the conflict I'm in. I'm on it. Which brings us to Matthew 2, 1 to 18. And rather than read this, I, I want to give you a two-minute overview of all history in Israel that brings us to this passage where the Magi show up and give Herod some big news, right? So, so are you ready? If you fall asleep, I won't hold it against you. But let me just give you the, 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 the short history of Israel. A guy comes from Iraq named Abram, because God called him from Iraq, Ur of the Chaldees, but it's Iraq, into, into this land. He says, this is not your land, uh, but I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be a land of promise. I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you so many descendants, they'll be like the sands of the sea. I'm going to bless all nations through you. He has a son against all odds named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau is slightly older as the twin, and so he's the one who, who is going to inherit this continuity of promise from Abraham. Uh, <clears throat> Abram, now Abraham. Esau says, I'm not really that interested in it. In fact, I'll trade it, Jacob, to you for a really big, uh, uh, juicy, hot bowl of lentils. And Jacob's going, that sounds like a good deal. Uh, meanwhile, it's a bad deal because it's a break in the relationship. Ultimately, Esau leaves, and he becomes the, the, the lead of a, of, a, of a group I didn't mention in that list a moment ago, the Edomites. The Edomites. And they took over an area all the way down from the bottom of the Dead Sea down to uh, uh, the, the Gulf of Sinai. So that whole area of, of, of Arabic people, that becomes, that's Esau. Meanwhile, Jacob has sons. They do really well for a while. They go into captivity. God calls Moses. They come out of captivity. They're making their way to the promised land. They're almost there. And what do they do? But they run into the Edomites. And the Edomites literally say, hell no, you're not coming this way. And that's where you get that whole encounter with Balaam the don and, and, and the donkey and all that. Um, so uh, Israel comes into the land. They, they, they live in the land. It's going pretty well. They want a king. It's not a good idea, but they get this king Saul. Saul's not a good king, so he's taken out. And they get a better king named David. David does really well for a while. He has a son named Solomon who's super wise for 10 minutes, and then he starts doing crazy things. Who Then he has two sons, uh, Ray and Jerry. Uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam and now the kingdom divides into two parts and they go down in this two part arrangement where there's the northern part of the country that they call Israel and the southern part they call Judea or Judah and, and they're in conflict with each other to the point that eventually they're so out of touch with God and each other that the northern uh, tribe uh, is taken out into captivity uh, and then finally the southern tribe Judah is taken out of captivity Oh my gosh, now what's going to happen? Oh, meanwhile, the people over at Edom go, that's pretty nice real estate. And there's nobody there to stop us from coming in. So they come in and take over the whole southern part of Israel from Jerusalem south. And they're Edomites, um, but the name that, they, that this area is called is a Greek version of Edom. It's called Edumea. Edumea. So that's interesting. Okay, uh, they get to come back and resettle the land. But meanwhile, now that all these people take over this part of the, the land, Meanwhile, other bad people come in, and, and, and Alexander the Great comes in, and, and, and all of a sudden, that whole area, Syria uh, and Egypt, all becomes Greek, basically. And there, at one point, there's a Greek soldier, a Greek, a Greek general named Antiochus Epiphanes, which means I'm awesome, basically. If he was a rapper, he'd have a perfect name, uh, because Antiochus Epiphanes means uh, the light shining from Antiochus. But his nickname among all people was Antioch Epimenes, which means he's a total nutcase. He's a madman. But he was a powerful madman. So he comes into Jerusalem. He takes it over. 
He, he, he corrupts the temple. He puts pig blood all over the temple. Uh, he says, if you do anything that looks like Jewish uh, behavior, I'll kill you all. And by the way, the Romans have now uh, come to back me up. And so it's like, oh, this is not good. And so finally the Israel uh, people said, we've had enough. And a family named Hyrcanus says, uh, we're going to take this guy out. Meanwhile, um, they have a big battle, and the temple is sieged, and, and they're the, the people sitting in the temple, and they have one little thing of oil they're going to burn uh, in front of the temple, uh, the altar of the Lord, and it lasts for eight days, and that's what ended last Sunday, called Hanukkah. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, uh, is pushed out by these, these Jewish rebels. Uh, they call themselves the Maccabees, the, the, the fisted, the hammer of God, basically my fist. They create a whole new Jewish uh, uh, system, high priest, the whole deal. But they notice that the Edomians are taking up a big chunk of their property. So they attack them and they say, you need to become Jewish or you die. And they said, hey, sounds great to be Jewish. We'd love to sign up. One of them is put in charge of that area. He becomes very successful as an administrator. His son gets pretty good. His grandson then is assigned, his grandson, a really wonderful young man named Herod, He's, he's assigned to go back into Israel to the north, and all these bad guys, robbers, and us and the other people are taking over. He goes up there, and he takes names, and, um, and takes names. And he, he clears them all out. The governor of Syria says, the now Roman governor of Syria says, you're an awesome guy. I want you to be one of my guys. Eventually, his two buddies, Antony, whose girlfriend Cleopatra, takes up a lot of Antony's time, and his other buddy, Octavius, who has more time, so he has time to be this, the new Caesar, over the Roman Empire, they say, you are so awesome, we're gonna make you the king of Israel, Herod. You've been so good at being uh, this handsome, articulate, brave soldier, organizer, general. Uh, the only problem is, there's a bunch of bad guys all over the place in the southern part. If you can conquer them, you get to be the king. Three years later, he's now the king. For the next 40 years, what does Herod do? He becomes one of the genius developers of all time. He starts rebuilding Athens. He builds a whole seaport an amazing seaport called Caesarea. Uh, he builds fortresses like Masada and, and Herodium. He rebuilds the entire city of Jerusalem. In fact, in fact takes the temple and makes it so awesome, it becomes a, a, a magnet for people to say, this must be an awesome God. He builds himself a fortress and an amazing palace. Meanwhile, he thinks everything is awesome, except that the people hate him. Why do they hate him? Because he's half Jewish and half Edomite. He's that lousy Edomian, this guy who's now usurped the entire country. Not only that, he came in and those Hyrcanus people who call themselves Maccabee, and they, they called themselves the Hasmonean dynasty, he killed them all. But he married Marianne, the granddaughter of the high priest, then killed her, killed all of her brothers. He got nervous about his, one of his, he, uh, he's had 10 wives and 14 children. Three of the boys looked, looked a little threatening. He killed them. And so all of a sudden, people said, we hate this guy. And he knew it. He's getting close to the end of his life, and he realizes, everybody hates me. I'm going to have it. I'm going to throw a party in Jericho uh, when I know I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. And I'm going to invite everybody to the party. And I'm going to kill them all so that when I die, the whole country will be crying. Just at this point, in Matthew 2, 1 through 18, some guys come saying, we got some great news. We're astrologers, astronomers. We saw this amazing star. You guys call the star Tzedek, which means king. And so we've come to tell you that the king of Israel is going to be arriving. And possibly has already arrived. And Herod's like, that's such great news. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. 
And he calls together all the leaders and he says, why didn't you guys tell me about this? Is this true? Well, yeah, it's prophecy that Bethlehem would be the place for the Messiah. Well, why didn't you, hey, you, you uh, wise men, you magi, great news, fantastic. We're all really excited about it. Uh, would you go identify the child, come back and let me know so I can worship him too? And it says the entire city of Jerusalem was buzzing with this. Of course, they go to visit the child, present their gifts, worship him, and realize, okay, God's telling us not to go back. And so they left through the back door. Meanwhile, Herod is incensed. He's crazed with paranoia. He's sick, but he's still powerful and dangerous. And so he's, he's going to take out, right before he thinks he's going to die, he, he kills the final son that he thinks will be uh, a threat to his throne. He says, look, uh, go and kill every child in Bethlehem, not just the ones in the last few months. Just, just make it really clear to them that I don't take threats lightly. Kill every kid born in the last two years. You see that really obscure verse there says, and it was like Rachel weeping over Rama. Like, what is that all about? When the people were taken into captivity, they were taken into captivity, and they went through a town called Rama, and they all gathered all the, the it's like, we're going to ship you to Auschwitz, and we're going to put you in the staging area. And, 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 the, and the, the figure is that Rachel, this woman who couldn't have kids, but had, had a whole tribe called Benjamin, um, was, it's as if she was poetically weeping over all these people who were going to be destroyed. So it was a horrible, horrible moment. Um, shortly after this, uh, Herod literally dies. And, and those people he gathered together for the party that he was going to slaughter, thankfully, one of his daughters, one of his sons said, it's time to do that. So this is the context. You see the inherent, deep, embedded conflict that Jesus entered into. Herod developed property but destroyed people. Jesus came to develop people and to destroy the works of Satan. What would cause Herod to react like this? The same thing that causes us to. He was projecting and protecting his fear. All the crazy things we do to each other in marriages and families and relationships and churches and companies everywhere politically is we're projecting and protecting fear. Everyone was threatened. Everyone was threatening. Nothing seems to have changed. Uh, here's another view of the wall around Bethlehem. This is a giant dove with a piece laurel in his mouth, right? Olive branch in his mouth. And um, he's wearing a flak jacket. It says, welcome to Palestine, welcome to Bethlehem. Another, another painting on a wall in Bethlehem uh, says, follow your dreams. Oops, it's been canceled. Uh, forget that. Uh, all this is created by an artist named Banksy. So where is the Prince of Peace in a world full of pain and conflict? It would be fair for people to say, okay, you guys have this big deal about peace and Jesus being the Prince of Peace. It's been 2,000 years. Where's the peace? Show me the peace. And Jesus says, remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Not the world that crashes and burns, but the world that is replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. I'm committed that I will fulfill that. Uh, he said to his disciples at the last meal he had with them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. It sounds like an empty promise, except for what he did. The three years of ministry, his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his promised return, he has the capacity to give us the peace we crave. And so in this life, we cannot afford, avoid conflict. We cannot avoid conflict. We cannot avoid conflict. 
when I was a new believer, uh, a couple were really important in my life. They were mentors to me. They were phenomenal people. Wally had been a missionary surgeon. Uh, Margo was a clinical psychologist. They're just phenomenal people. And, and one time I was with them at, at their house, and they have this massive argument, huge argument. And I was shocked. Because as a new Christian coming from a very disrupted family, a very conflicted family, I thought, man, if my mom and dad could just become Christians, all the conflict would go away. I'm very naive on my part. And so here's Wally and Margo, the people that to me are the paragons of Jesus. Uh, Margo was, was the, the, the Young Life staff person who said, hey, help, help me uh, start a Young Life club at this high school where you go. Uh, I said, what's with you guys? You're Christians. And they started laughing and they stopped the argument. I said, what do you mean? Well, you're, you're arguing like my mom and dad did. They go, no, 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 no. What we're doing is we're working through the conflict we're having. We're working toward a resolution of this. We're working toward peace. We're applying the gospel to this part of our relationship. And it was like a, an epiphany for me. Like, oh my gosh, conflict does not just go away. It's that Christ equips us, if we're willing to learn, how to take on the conflict within us and around us, between us. So we want peace without conflict. That's false peace, right? We want peace, but without love, without honesty, without humility, without justice, without courage, without wisdom, without resilience, without commitment. We just want it to go away. And maybe you've lived like I lived for most of, most of my first life, for, for first part of my life, where these, there'd be this fake peace and we'd blow up every holiday or every, every time you didn't, you, you, you weren't quite ready, but it would blow up and come out of nowhere. You kind of tamp it down and then move on. That's not peace. It's play acting, it's pretending, it's posing, it's a fear-based, passive-aggressive formula for despair. And what happens is, in the name of Jesus, we say, this conflict thing is way too big. I think that's a separate category in my life. And so churches and marriages and families and relationships are filled with conflict that could be addressed and resolved. But we lack the will to say, okay, Lord, your will be done. Jesus confronted Israel's ideas about peace and righteousness, and things got messy in a hurry. Likewise, when Messiah Jesus challenges our personal and cultural orthodoxy about what we think is right, we don't do any better than the Pharisees. We say, ah, oh, that's, that's getting personal now. I have a right to hold my point of view. But until we align with his kingdom values, we are walking, talking, balking contradictions. We profess faith but live in fear. We claim belief but get none of the benefits of having faith. Because one of the benefits of having faith is confronting conflict and finding peace. Aligning simply means living in relationship with Jesus. It's literally saying, Lord, your will be done. What does it look like for me to deal with conflict in this situation? And, and usually we need help doing that. So Jesus' disciples are everyday people learning to walk with Jesus every day with these resources, his word, his Holy Spirit, his church, and his abiding presence. Now that, that incredible toolbox, quiver, arsenal of resources there's no reason for us to say, I'm going to remain perpetually in conflict. What I am going to do is embrace the peace of Christ that confronts conflict. And I'm going to experience that breakthrough that God wants me to experience. And so the third point then of the morning is this. Jesus' life is the best model for ours. Why? Because it's a model of love, honesty, humility, justice, courage, wisdom, resilience, and commitment. And so Peter says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. You love all these things. You value all these things. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. There's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek here. 
because he knows the people he's writing to are immersed in grief and trials. We say, hey, maybe you have a few of them. But this is what the gospel speaks to. This is why Jesus came into the world, not so that we could go shopping, that we could start really living. And so he says, dear friends, don't be surprised that you're going through this stuff. At the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. To, to participate in the sufferings of Christ is not to say, gee, I need more suffering. Can you please make me, make me suffer? It's to say Jesus was willing to suffer to confront the conflict that robs us of life. Because typically what conflict isn't is, is uh, just a disagreement. It's a threat to our very well-being that we think, I've got I've to do all kinds of crazy things to cope with this. And as they say, you know, in, in war, truth is the first casualty. So to be willing to suffer is to say, am I willing to confront what I'm feeling and own it? Am I willing to, to, to listen and understand what people are experiencing? Am I willing to then find a way through that? That's very difficult to do. But in that, we experience the glory of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Peter says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which even though the refined perishes, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God is preparing his people to be lights in the world, to overcome the darkness. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And so Advent means conflict no longer scares us or keeps us walled in and walled off. Why? Because we have the love and life of Christ equipping us and guiding us to overcome it. Remember, it's not just I'll do better, I'll try harder. It's not trying, it's now training in righteousness. It's learning to think God's thoughts, learning to apply them in creative, practical ways and say, wow, this is very powerful. You might even have a conflict that has nothing to do with people. It's just a conflict in you that you're suffering something right now. You think, this is the worst thing I could possibly suffer. This is not right. This is not fair. Where's Jesus in this? And part of this opportunity in this crisis or challenge that you're facing is to say, all right, Lord, uh, I, I can't beat this, uh, but I want to walk with you through this. Help me deal with the conflict I'm feeling uh, about what I'm facing, the unfairness of it, the indignity of it, whatever the issue is. And so Jesus came to set the captives free. That's you and me. And the gates of hell can no longer keep us out of God's kingdom. And so this is what I was referring to earlier when I said, I think we misunderstand what Jesus said. The gates of hell should not overcome it. Nobody's trying to break through the gates of hell into hell. Think about it. Somehow we have drawn this conclusion, oh, we're going we're gonna to charge in and knock down the gates of hell. It's like, wait a minute, we're inside hell. We're inside this rebellious world that is compromised and, and laden and imbued and, and absolutely overwhelmed with conflict. Jesus is saying, this is not the world you were created for. By the power of my kingdom, the gates of hell can no longer keep you contained. My kingdom will break down the gates of hell to set the captives free. Do you see the power of that? Do you see it's a different way of seeing it than typically our, our culture has assumed? The church in America has assumed that Jesus is leading us out of the gates of hell into an experience of his kingdom. This is powerful theology, only made possible because of Jesus' advent in the world. That's why the advent, that advent means conflict. 
So walk in the next chapter of your life with Jesus guiding you through every challenge. Okay, Lord, here's the challenge. It's within me, it's around me, it's with people, it's with a situation, a circumstance. It's, it's, it's a fear, it's a spiritual stronghold, a belief in a behavior that keeps me from um, thriving in you. Only you, Lord, can deliver me from it. Who do you want to use to do that? A counselor? A deeper understanding of your word? A better experience of community? A greater awareness of your Holy Spirit working in me? Is it that you want me to let go of some of the things I'm clinging to so that you can put your grace and forgiveness and love and life in my hands? I don't know. You do, though. And if you open your heart and mind to God, he will show you what you need. Why? Because Advent means conflict is no longer the boss of me. Jesus is. And if Jesus is the boss of you, you're in really good hands. Because he says, I've come to give you life in all its fullness. I've, I've not come to judge the world. I've come to save it. I hope this is, is, is a deep, resonating part of your advent. That in the midst of your often unstable and threatening world, Jesus is bringing you his peace that even goes beyond understanding how it can make sense in a world so conflicted. Cling to that. Next week, we're going to talk about Advent as wonder. But if we don't talk about conflict, we will fail to be able to see or appreciate the wonder. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you speak to my heart and to each of our hearts in ways that would allow us to recognize the conflicts that we wrestle with, that we don't want to pay attention to, or to remember the ways you brought us through conflict and, and set us free. We thank you, Lord, for the way you're breaking down uh, barriers that keep us from the peace that you came to give us. We pray, Lord, that we'd have the courage of our convictions to trust you, to trust one another as we walk together with you, to trust your word, to trust your Holy Spirit. As we do things that are conventional or unconventional, intuitive or counterintuitive, to embrace uh, you as the hope of the world. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. This brings us to a time of tithes and offering. As the ushers come forward to receive you, if you have your connection or prayer card, uh, you can tear that out. Or if something in the sermon moves you that you want prayer for, go ahead and add that in there. They'll be receiving those shortly. If you're a guest to LJCC, this is a time that we give back from the blessings that God has given us. So let's continue our time in worship with giving and song.
No. Oh. 
Advent means conflict, but it means more. Really what it means is peace. The peace of Christ is available to you, whoever you are, whoever you are. Uh, simply by opening your heart and your mind to Jesus, you will receive the peace of Christ. Uh, that then becomes the, the basis by which you pursue answers to your questions, resolution of your doubts, uh, resolving the conflicts that keep you from God and keep you from understanding and being able to receive his love and keeping you from relationship with people. Because God not only wants to bless you, he wants to bless people through you. And for that, you need the peace of Christ in your life. You learn how to say yes and how to say no. Uh, in Christ. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, giving you his peace, his shalom, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>